Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Cornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply Podcast. I'm Sunny Megatron, clinical sexologist and sex educator, and my co-host is sex-positive psychotherapist, Kate Laurie. This week's discussion is all about psychedelics and polyamory. Now, psychedelics are currently being utilized in intentional ways and under professional care to assist with all sorts of things like getting past limiting beliefs to cultivating self-understanding and self-love and the list goes on. Now, in this conversation, we speak with therapist Justin Natoli about the ways in which psychedelics may impact people in consensually non-monogamous relationships. Let me tell you a little bit more about our guest. Justin Natoli is a psychotherapist, a Hakomi practitioner, retreat facilitator, and founder of the queer medicine community. In their private practice in LA, Justin specializes in depth and somatic psychotherapies, trauma, addiction, psychedelic integration, and working within kink, polyamorous, and LGBTQIA plus communities. Outside of clinical work, Justin's mission is to spread queer medicine through writing, speaking, and facilitating workshops and gatherings. They serve on the Chakruna Institute's Women, Gender Diversity, and Sexual Minorities Working Group and contributed to Chakruna's latest book, Queering Psychedelics. Justin received a JD with honors from UCLA School of Law and a master's in depth psychology from the Pacifica Graduate Institute. They received a certificate in psychedelic therapy and research from CIIS and are completing a three-year program in psychedelic and transpersonal therapy through the AWE Foundation. You can learn more about Justin Natoli by visiting their links that are in our episode description, including websites, social media, and more. Before we get started, I also need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media posts and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and they do not create a patient-client relationship. Now, in this episode, we talk mainly about the positive influences of psychedelics, but please, do your own research and get your own medical and legal support since psychedelic experiences can vary widely and in some cases can be incredibly difficult. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without getting clearance from your healthcare provider and receiving professional legal counsel. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. And if you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. 
Now, here comes the good part that I know you're going to enjoy. Here is our conversation with Justin Natoli about psychedelics and polyamory. Justin, we are so happy to have you on. So I became aware of you when I went to the Denver Psychedelic Science Convention. And when I listened to you speak, you were speaking um, on a panel about queering psychedelics. And specifically, your part was about polyamory. And as you were speaking, you were the first person in my life to validate some of the things that I had been thinking recently. I had gone to a retreat and had like some very powerful plant medicine journeys. And I realized that my non-monogamous brain had been shifted. And I started to feel that people that were non-monogamous some of us, not all of us, maybe intuitively, subconsciously, we're moving towards something, but that our vision has been short-sighted and it actually gets way bigger than that. And then you started saying all that. You started speaking on that. And I was like, it was just three months after that journey. And it was just so validating. So I wanted to have you on the podcast because of that. And then when I started to look you up, I was like, oh my God, are we like twins separated at birth? You and I have a lot in common. It's crazy. But anyway, so on Open Deeply, we ask some deep ass questions and we go deep. So anyway, here is the first question. It's got a very big lead in. You founded the Queer Medicine Community and on its website, you posted a queer creation story that tells of global harmony being disrupted by a greedy, hungry spirit. And in that story, there is a passage that reads, but the queer essence of the world could not be contained. For in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And you see, light has a peculiar quality. It is part particle and wave, matter and energy. It is two-spirited and in its beginning transcends being just one or the other. Light is queer. So in the beginning, queer energy was a spark of existence that ignited this universe into being, and it can be suppressed, but never extinguished. And the whole story is very beautiful. And I was wondering if you can just speak more on that story, like what feelings come up for you just as you hear it read back to you, what it means to you now, just any thoughts you have about that, and maybe also your intention behind the queer medicine community. Thank you so much for bringing up the creation story. It's so deep in my heart. And every spiritual philosophy involves a type of creation myth to understand and conceptualize the framework of reality in the universe. And part of the mission of the queer medicine community is to share the divinity of queerness, the archetypal queer that has been suppressed in our society. And so if we're going to say that there is a spiritual philosophy in queerness, and by queer, I mean so much more than just gender or sexual orientation. I mean, all the parts of us that don't neatly fit in the boxes that society calls normal just to preserve the status quo. So just like we all have archetypal feminine and archetypal masculine elements, and I cringe a little bit at using the words feminine and masculine here because I don't want to connect these archetypes to physical gender, but that's what we call them in our society. 
that there's also an archetypal queer to complete the trilogy. Just like there's the left brain and the right brain, but also the corpus callosum in the middle that connects the two and turns a binary into a spectrum. There's an archetypal queer energy that has been suppressed in our society, just like the divine feminine has been suppressed. And so to reclaim the divinity and the sacredness of queerness, I thought it would be really important to create a queer creation myth. If you'd like, I can actually share that myth with you now. I love that. That would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, the world was an interconnected web of kin. Each being was unique and celebrated for its differences. The trees whispered to the birds, the rivers flowed into the oceans, and the animals roamed free. All beings lived together in harmony and reciprocity, and each being was respected for the gifts that it alone could share. But one day, a great spirit of hunger entered the world. It didn't like harmony and balance. It wanted to grow and grow without limits. And to accomplish this, the hunger spirit played a trick on the humans. It wove an illusion that there was only one path instead of many. And it convinced each human that its path was the truth. And that those who walked other paths were sin instead of kin. The illusion of sin spread like a disease. It corrupted the minds of the people causing them to treat the queerness of what they could not understand as a problem to fix rather than a sacred mystery to explore for its gifts. And so the people gathered together according to their sameness. And because they needed to fit in, the humans squeezed themselves into boxes and clipped off the parts of themselves that didn't fit. And in doing so, they lost touch with their own unique medicine. Well, this satisfied the hunger spirit greatly because the humans became hungrier and hungrier to fill the void of what they had cut out of themselves. And because the humans were no longer kin with the natural world, the earth became an it instead of a she. Now the humans could take and consume as much as they pleased without giving back. The forests were cleared and the animals were tamed. The rivers were dammed and the waters were diverted. And everything continued to grow and grow without limit and whatever didn't fit the mold was cast out. But the queer essence of the world could not be contained. For in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And you see, light has this peculiar quality. It is both a particle and a wave, matter and energy. It is two-spirited, and its beingness transcends just being one or the other. Light is queer. So in the beginning, queer energy was the spark of existence that ignited this universe into being, and it can be suppressed but never extinguished. And one day, light returned. It broke through the darkness of sameness and appeared as a rainbow. The glimmering beauty of diverse colors captivated the hearts of the humans and reminded them that the world is a tapestry woven from many threads, each adding its unique color to the pattern each thread necessary to hold the cloth together. And so the humans began to weave themselves back into the tapestry. They learned to respect and honor the gifts of the other and to see the beauty in what they don't understand. And slowly but surely, the illusion of sin faded away 
and all beings respected each other as kin once again. Fucking beautiful. Yeah. Powerful. Ooh, I'm going to have to like listen back on that a few times and sit with it. And uh, I want to get to that world. I want to get to that world. Uh, so you, first of all, are amazing, but you left a whole different life. You left your prestigious job as a lawyer to create this life that you are so passionate about as a psychotherapist who works with psychedelics and many other healing modalities. So on your website, you lead with a quote from the Velveteen Rabbit. And taking that in mind, I would love to ask you, what's the most painful part of becoming real? And what are the gifts of becoming real too? Wow. What a good question. The most painful part of becoming real is the truth. And the truth is beautiful and ugly. And we're beautiful and ugly at the same time. And we really have to accept that in order to become real. And so the pain of that is that this world isn't well set up to really handle the truth of the full spectrum of who we are the beautiness and the ugliness. And in particular, I think society loves to paint as ugly things that are in truth beautiful, which is in fact just all the marvelous manifestations of human diversity. How beautiful is that? But there's not room for all of that to exist in society. Our society, in order to preserve the status quo, loves to privilege and prioritize certain ways of being. And then these ways of being are called normal. And then if you're not normal, we're punished in so many different ways. So we squeeze ourselves into boxes and clip off the parts of ourselves that don't fit. And not everyone has the privilege to be able to express the fullness of who they are. Not everyone has the resources or the community or the privilege to be able to do that. So it can be very difficult to accept the truth of all the marvelous aspects of our unique essence. But I'll say the journey is worth it because we tap into our queer medicine, which is the gift of our unique essence, our unique beingness. And this is the gift that only we can offer to the world. There will be no other version of you ever again. And there never has been a duplicate of you. So there's this one chance in the being that is you to share all of these magnificent gifts with the world. So that's the benefit. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And another quote from you reads that we all want to live a happy life, but our brains are hardwired to focus on problems. And most psychotherapy is an extension of this, focusing on diagnosing what's wrong with you. And you say that you take a different approach. And I'm hoping if you would, could you tell us about your approach that diverges from that? Yeah, thank you. So I can't really give a one size fits all approach because everybody is different. And I would say that my approach really is about honoring the uniqueness of our differences and all of the marvelous manifestations of human diversity. So I can't ever say that my therapy will be the same for you compared to somebody else. But one thing that I think is common that I do respect is within you is a healing intelligence and a healing wisdom that is greater than all of the forces that are trying to control it. 
So the medical models, the different therapeutic models, there was a time where it was seen as a mental illness to have same-sex attraction, for example, or even to be polyamorous or kinky earns you points towards being diagnosed as a sex addict on some tests that are unfortunately still being used today. So it's a real abuse of my power to try to say that I know who you are supposed to be or even how to help you. But what I can do is I can connect you with your own inner resources, with your own inner healing intelligence, and to reflect some difficult truths for you so that your own inner healing wisdom can unfold in exactly the way that it's meant to. Mm, thank you. Wonderful. Yeah. So you have a chapter in the Chakruna anthology, which is Queering Psychedelics from Oppression to Liberation in Psychedelic Medicine. And this chapter specifically is how psychedelics can guide the transformative journey of polyamory. So in that chapter, you say that psychedelics can help with three primary struggles within polyamory, which are shame, past trauma, and difficulty transcending labels. So I want to talk about all of those and dig in. But first, I want to do a general question. Why do you think psychedelics help? And could it have anything to do with the shifts in the default mode network in the brain, or maybe the common psychedelics experience of being connected to timelessness or limitless love? What are your thoughts on all that? I know it's a big question. Yeah. And so you mentioned the book Queering Psychedelics. So just to give a shout out to the Chakruna Institute, it's an amazing organization. It serves to bridge the worlds of Western medicine and indigenous traditions. It makes information about psychedelic therapy available in publicly accessible ways. It also gives voices to people who have been put on the sidelines in the psychedelic world. And in particular, their indigenous reciprocity initiative is something that anyone can donate to. And they find organizations that will use money in responsible ways to help indigenous peoples. And so I think it's a really wonderful charity aspect of that nonprofit organization that anyone can contribute to. And so it's a good question and an important question, but it's also a Western post-industrial medical model type of question. And I think that these plant medicines expand so much beyond just the medical model in ways that I personally have no ability to understand. For example, the ways that impacts us on a spiritual level, for example. And so I can respond only on the Western post-industrial medical model, but I just wanted to name that these medicines expand so much beyond just that. So one of the most important ways I found that psychedelics can help us navigate the transformative journey of polyamory is to help us meet the parts of ourselves that we tend to meet with an uh-oh, because they don't neatly fit within the boxes of society. And instead of meeting them with an uh-oh, we can meet them with a wow. So someone might think, uh-oh, I have this elaborate sexual kink. Uh-oh, that's a problem, right? Because of if we're listening to the voices of society. And in that way, we can actually prevent ourselves from going on the treasure hunt to find all of these wonderful gems of our uniqueness. But what psychedelics can do is they can be a heart-opening medicine. And so what it can do is it increases our empathy for ourself. It increases our curiosity for ourself. It can help us meet ourselves with love instead of shame. And so then when we encounter these parts of ourselves that have been unexplored or unfamiliar, we can meet them with a wow instead of an uh-oh, which then encourages us to take that treasure hunt to discover all the little bits and pieces of ourselves. 
And so in that way, I think psychedelics can really help us overcome shame. When it comes to past traumas, our early relationships, in particular, our relationships with our early caregivers, can fundamentally impact the way that we show up in our romantic relationships. For example, if our caregivers were inconsistently available, right, we might become hyper-focused. Oh, is this good mommy or bad mom? Good daddy or bad daddy? Are they going to be mean or loving right now? And so what that does to us is we become hyper-focused on very slight adjustments in the levels of closeness in our relationship. And relationships naturally, they become close, then there's distance, then there's closeness, then there's distance again. But if we have this more anxious style of connection, we become hypervigilant about these small fluctuations. And so then we can become very jealous, we can become very insecure or even explosive when we see our partner or partners have that natural distance. On the flip side, sometimes our primary caregivers weren't that available at all, and we had to become self-sufficient and independent. And in that situation, too much closeness can actually feel like a threat because this closeness become a restriction on our ability to take care of ourselves when we really need it. And so in those situations, a person might want to create buffers in their more intimate relationships. They don't feel flooded or suffocated by too much intimacy. And what psychedelics can do is some preliminary studies suggest that psychedelics can help us heal these types of wounds from our earliest relationships in similar ways that psychedelics can help us heal any type of trauma, because these are a type of relational trauma. And when it comes to you know, expanding our labels, so much of in our culture, there's these little boxes that we put on our relationships. And these boxes, there's nothing necessarily wrong with labels. It helps us organize the world. But in our heteronormative society, it puts these different relationships on different hierarchies of intimacy based on the label. And it sets these rules and restrictions for the types of love that we're allowed to give and receive in these types of relationships. So for example, it might not occur to someone that they could raise a child with their best friend. It might not occur to someone that they could reach out to an acquaintance for emotional support. And there's these rules and expectations. I see people in my therapy practice who say, Justin, I really like this person. We're having sex, but I'm worried about having sex too frequently or even telling them how much I care about them because I know I don't want to date them. What a shame to withhold the love we have in our hearts just because we fear that it will lock us into this path that we don't want to be on. And so what psychedelics can do is they are so helpful in breaking us free of these limiting assumptions, limiting labels that we've sort of grown accustomed to now without even questioning them. And so psychedelics can really help us see our relationships with fresh new eyes so that we can really explore all of the possibilities of love and intimacy that they have to offer. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So that's like kind of like the first, you did a big brushstroke and then a more detailed brushstroke. And so let's even go more detailed with the same stuff that you're talking about, you know, so bringing it to polyamory, those three areas, the shame, the past trauma, the difficulty transcending labels. I just want to speak on my personal experience a little bit. So I've been non-monogamous since 2003. And, you know, I'm 54 now. I started out in non-monogamy in my early 30s. And 
I've done a lot of personal work. I've done EMDR, I've done somatic psychotherapy, I've done holotropic and pranayama breath work, you know, I've done some plant medicine journeys, not a ton, but when I do, it's like crazy powerful and life-changing. And I'll have to say that a recent plant medicine journey that I did a bit ago, that one, and there was another one that I did the year before the pandemic, those two, it felt like Um, How should I put it? Like if I were to think about like my ex-husband and my 13-year relationship, it still kind of felt like that relationship, if you were to think of it as a tapestry, like a a interwoven tapestry. And in that tapestry were some of the things that hurt me. And then in that tapestry were beautiful moments where he loved me well. But before it was almost the way my brain worked, it was almost like the tapestry was gluing the bad and the good together, so to speak. And it felt like the psychedelic experiences took a big gardening shear and went chop, chop, chop. And then the love could exist very beautifully unto itself. And the pain just fell away. And I started to look at love differently instead of looking at it like a, did this person love me well over the course of my relationship? I started to think, well, one are there moments of me being loved well across my life? And all of a sudden it was like, boop, 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 boop. all these little moments, thousands of moments where animals, people, my loved, you know, past boyfriends, partners, love me well. They all populated when before they were diminished because they were glued together in this wonky tapestry of pain. It felt like my brain all of a sudden worked differently and I could connect to all of this love. And then the second thing, was before I I realized that despite a whole lifelong journey of trying to break down any kind of mental conditioning by our society, I realized that my psyche was still viewing love between me and one person. And then all of a sudden I started to think, especially like in that last journey of that person being a component of love, like in a moment of love, it might be like, especially in nature or something, it might be the nature, it might be the art, the music you're playing, you know, all of these other things are a component of love. And this person is just a component of that, rather than the end all be all. And it makes us realize we use the word codependent as this small subset of society. And when you look at it from that lens, God, how many people are codependent? (laughs) If that's the bar. So I think a lot of these things that you're talking about, lead towards that, right? Like lead towards this bigger sense of love. Like when we break down the shame, when we break down the past trauma, when we break down these labels and all of a sudden there's this freeness that happens that becomes way bigger than even the most lofty non-monogamous idea. That's so beautiful. One of the most frequent things I hear about people in their psychedelic experiences is the realization that love is the most abundant resource in the universe. And I like to define polyamory according to its Latin and Greek roots, which basically just translate to loving many. So regardless of how many partners you have, regardless of whether you're even having sex at all, you can be polyamorous as a spiritual philosophy. And this is what I mean by this being a spiritual philosophy. The spiritual philosophy of removing the barriers in our hearts that prevent us from giving and receiving love in all of its manifestations in whatever way is most authentic to us. 
And how beautiful that you were able to remove society's labels, remove the distorting impacts of past trauma, to really see and let yourself absorb all of the love that you have available in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, still a work in progress, but yeah, definitely a, a nice little jump start towards that for sure. I'll share an experience that I had. I had a best friend and we were about eight years into being best friends together. And I was in a plant medicine ceremony. And it was during that ceremony that I realized that we were actually husbands. And it's not that I fell in love with him in that moment. It's more like something clicked. And I realized that we had been living and loving as husbands this whole time. And so they say that you're not supposed to make any major decisions within six months of a ceremony. Well, some rules are meant to be broken. It was all I could do to stop from reaching out to him during the ceremony, but I was able to wait until the next day. I sent him a text. I said, it's time for us to deepen our bond. And he just responded, duh, and let me know that one year prior in that same ceremony, but one year prior to that, the medicine had given him the same realization. And so we've been together now for about five and a half years, married for three. That's That's so beautiful. Beautiful. Oh, my goodness. That is amazing. So for this chapter, you interviewed 25 people. And I would love to know if you have a story or a prominent idea or even a quote that really impacted you from those interviews. Yeah, there is. So one of the things that I found both in my interviews, but also this You know, I've been working about issues of non-monogamy even when I was in therapy school. So even my master's thesis as a therapist, I explored attachment theory in a non-monogamous context. And one of the things I found is that people who have a secure relationship with a community tended to be more polyamorous. So example, the Burning Man community tended to be more polyamorous. And the way they spoke about Burning Man was as though it itself was a lover to them. The radical fairy community is more non-monogamous. There's even some elite, the book Sex at Dawn talks about these elite units in the Air Force that had a very high death rate. So they were very tightly connected to each other. And there again was a higher incidence of non-monogamy because in the likely event one of them would die, the surviving spouse needed to be protected and supported by the tribe. And so the book Polysecure also talks about this type of philosophy that if we have these deep, secure connections with things other than just our primary romantic partner, that this can replace some of the security and prevent some of the jealousy that we might find in our relationships if we open up. And so one of the quotes expressed that so beautifully. One participant shared, psychedelics opened my skin, opened my heart, opened my soul to trust in pure love, to trust in my own body. I don't need anyone else to experience that ecstasy. Mm, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So my hypothesis is that through psychedelics, we can deepen our connections with the divine, deepen our connections with the planet, with the universe, even deepen our connections with our own physical bodies in ways that I think can help us prevent some of that insecurity and jealousy in a romantic relationships if we remove the illusion of monogamy that so many people have just to protect themselves from that jealousy and insecurity. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 
you are so in tune with us that some of the questions we have, you're answering before we got there. And so I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to ask a different thing than I intended because I was going to ask you about your story of meeting your partner. But instead, I want to talk more just about what you just said about community. And it's interesting to talk about that because like in your queer origin story, you talk about the hungry, I think you call it the hungry spirit or something of that ilk. And we could apply that to so many different things in the world, like, you know, dominator culture, you know, all of these things. And if we look back in our history, there was a point in time, and it still exists, where like in Africa, there was more tribal connection and a village would raise a child. Or, you know, in some pagan societies, there was more of a connection and reverence for nature and and being connected to all of this. And, And then the church stripped that all away. Because again, it's like, if you strip all that away, if you strip away a person's resources, then you need the church, right? And that's just one example. I could keep going down a list of examples of how we've been stripped away from our own imagination that's a resource. Like some of me and my clients, when they were little kids, they had an imaginary world in their head, not just an imaginary friend. And then at some point, an adult said, you need to grow up and stop that. And then part of the work that I do a lot of times is to rebuild a client's imagination as a big resource and to rebuild these things that patriarchy and organized religion have stripped away. It's interesting to think deeper on what you're saying about like all of these things that people find so difficult, you know, jealousy and the pain that they experience within non-monogamy might just gently soften and be way less of an issue if a person is connected with love to way more than one, again, one, two, three partners where it's more like, you're connected to community and nature and animals, and you're so fortified in this net of love that you recognize and respect. That's the other thing. It's like, how many times do I see people yanking their dog along as they're walking where you can tell they have no respect for the love of this dog? It's like when we lean into community, but also have respect and see it. I guess my question, because I'm just kind of like talking out loud, is a conversation about positive affect tolerance. What I mean by that is just, this happens in psychedelics a lot of times. People don't prepare enough for their psychedelic journey. They don't have the meditation on board. They don't have the resources on board. And so when the psychedelic experience like clears out your trauma in your body and now you're connected to Shakti and you're connected to love and all of that, if you don't have the positive affect tolerance for that, if you don't have the tolerance for that amount of love, then your psyche is more than likely going to kick it out. And in a lot of ways that happens through spiritual bypassing or a type of spiritual narcissism where, well, I don't know how to make sense about all this love, all this positive affect. So the way that my brain is going to organize it is that, oh, wow, I'm uniquely now positioned to spread all of this love to the world after one or a handful of ceremonies. Now I'm going to be a medicine practitioner and I'm the one that has all the answers. It's a really common step that people have in their healing journey. Okay. And so when you are working with clients, because I know you do, I believe MDMA and ketamine, is that right? No, right now, ketamine assisted therapy is the only legal psychedelic therapy, at least in California. I also, though, I design and facilitate medicine retreats in Costa Rica at a retreat center in in a legal way. So I do have that experience as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that that is a part of it. It's Part of why it's so important, I think, to work with psychedelic healing with a trained practitioner 
is to help avoid some of these pitfalls and integrate your experience into your day-to-day life in a way that serves you rather than in a way that exacerbates that common occurrence of spiritual bypassing or spiritual narcissism that can happen towards the beginning of someone's journey. And I'll say even more that right now, one of the leading ideas in the study of psychedelic medicines is that it's the mystical experience that is the conduit of the healing. And so the more that you can have these aspects of a mystical experience, well, that is what heals our trauma and heals ourselves. And that's partially true. But one aspect that I think is largely ignored in the research and the practice of psychedelic assisted therapy is that community is also the conduit of healing and that community is actually how we can integrate these experiences together. So someone say, hey, you're being a little bit of a narcissistic prick right now. (laughs) I think community can really do a good job in keeping us in our place and reflecting these things to us as well as on the positive side forming a container of people who speak the same language and are having the same types of experiences so that they can support each other's journeys. So I think it's so important that we expand the research of community in the psychedelic experience, not just through things like group ceremonies, but also ongoing psychedelic integration groups, group ceremonies with people that come again and again to the same ceremony so a type of psychedelic community can start to form Now, of course, there has to be wise leadership in these communities. And unfortunately, because this is all so new, it's so easy for people who are still in that spiritual narcissistic part of their journey, but have a lot of charisma. It's so easy for them to start their own type of psychedelic community in a way that ultimately does harm for people instead of helping people. But humans are social animals. And I think part of the gift of psychedelics right now, as they become more more popular, it's allowing us to connect with each other in ways that we have been malnourished for for so long in our history, especially in the Western world, because the economic engine of unlimited growth actually depends on our separation. Because when we are malnourished and as social animals, intimacy and interconnection is perhaps our most needed nutrient. When we are malnourished in that way, our brain shifts in pretty dramatic ways. You might be familiar with the term fight or flight. So when we are unsafe, if there's a threat, or if our brains believe that we are lacking something essential, it shifts us from a state where we are generous, we're designed to live in a state of abundance, we're cooperative, we dream big dreams together, we're reciprocal in our love and support of each other. It shifts us to live in a world of scarcity where we are hierarchical, we're competitive, we use our power to dominate other people. You'll remember in the early stage of the pandemic, the Michigas over the toilet paper, where even though there was plenty of toilet paper, if we all just acted sanely, but because we were in that threat mode, we hoarded it, we kept it from each other, we fought each other over it. Well, we're living that way on a regular basis. And that because heteronormative society tells us that we need to organize ourselves in love and relationship in certain ways. We create these little units, these competitive units that we live in, and we're fundamentally sort of in opposition with each other in a way that unfortunately really helps the economic engine of unlimited growth because we're filling the void with consumption and we're also willing to compete with each other for the love and the intimacy that should be our birthright. Yeah, and we say this in the intro to your episode, but it's worth repeating 
that, you know, not all psychedelic journeys are these beautiful, blissful experiences. And sometimes people have nightmarish experiences within a psychedelic experience that are incredibly hard. But it goes back to what you're saying. Like if you have done the front end work of connecting to community, and then in addition, you know, things like meditation, like these grounding exercises, but also connecting to community. And then you have a psychedelic experience that maybe that's in community too. And then on the back end, you have community, like the chance that even if you have a really hard psychedelic experience, that you're going to be able to move through it, especially if you have a good set and setting during your experience, you know, that's really amplifies your ability to even get through the hardest psychedelic journey if you have that community going as a through line. Yeah, I like the analogy and I'm not well situated, not being a female bodied person. I'm not well situated to make this analogy, but I've heard people say that it can be similar to childbirth and labor and that it sure can be physically very uncomfortable, but you're going through a natural process that needs to happen because you're birthing something. And there again, yeah, of course you need the support of the community. People need support in their pregnancy, during the childbirth, after the childbirth, and that something can feel nightmarish when in fact it's just difficult and we need community support to help us through it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you were talking about community, one thing that was running through my mind that I think a lot of listeners might relate to is, you know, talking about how the system by design keeps us separated from community and from those resources. And one of the analogies that I think of is a lot of us have heard in uh, abusive situations or oppressors will keep us separated from our resources, our friends, our family, you know, that connectedness. And it's to me, the same sort of thing, just on a grand scale, we're being separated from our resources when we're separated from community. So, Along the lines of community, your book, Queering Psychedelics, is a Shakruna Institute anthology, and you also volunteer with them, too. So I want to read their mission statement really quickly, which is, we promote reciprocity in the psychedelic community and support the protection of sacred plants and cultural traditions. We advance psychedelic justice through curating critical conversations and uplifting the voices of women, queer people, indigenous peoples, people of color, and the global South in the field of psychedelic science. So Shakruna seems amazing. And I would love to hear stories that you have about your connection with them that might exemplify the heartbeat of this institution. Yeah. So the most recent thing that I can think of is the conference that Chakruna put on in April in San Francisco, the Queering Psychedelics Conference. It was the second time that that conference was presented, and I was a speaker. And people from all over the world came to this conference, and it was a place where voices that are traditionally kept on the sidelines of the conversation were now allowed to share in the spotlight. And just seeing how touching it was for people to connect in queer affirming spaces that were also psychedelic affirming spaces. You could just see how needed this was. And so again, I think what this does is it just represents the sense of community that people are so hungry for, where through Chakruna, I run a monthly queer psychedelic integration group open to all genders and sexual orientations. We meet on the second Friday of every month from 12 to 1.30 p.m. Pacific time. 
And there have been people who are regulars in that group who are now regulars in psychedelic conferences and in Chakruna in their Queering Psychedelics Conference, whether they came as a participant or to volunteer. And so you're seeing that there's a community forming of a queer affirming, psychedelic affirming space. And it just exemplifies how, how needed these types of relationships are in our world, regardless of your gender or sexual orientation. Yeah. And we'll put that in the show notes for sure. Mm-hmm. You've stated that in your clinical work, you've noticed that people seek both monogamy and polyamory for two basic purposes. The first purpose has to do with avoiding discomfort and satisfying desires. And you state that in the case of monogamy, that can show up as the desire for security and the avoidance of jealousy. And that with polyamory, it's a desire for freedom and the avoidance of stagnation. And then you state that the second purpose is to pursue a transformative journey. And I love this quote from you. You state, for those of us who walk the transformative path of polyamory, the universe itself is our soulmate. And I know it feels like in this interview, we've been talking about that a good bit, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that quote. Yeah, thank you. So just like Sunny, you mentioned the quote from the Velveteen Rabbit, you become, it takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time we are real, most of our hair has been loved off, our eyes pop out, we get loose in our joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except for those who don't understand. And I think this applies to the way that people can relate to monogamy or non-monogamy in their relationships, where if they have their sharp edges, if they have to be carefully kept, they might try to organize their world and organize their relationships to avoid any type of discomfort. And for some people, that's necessary. People are at different stages of their journey. I'm not going to pathologize what any one person needs at this time in their life. But this is a very limited way of being, I think, because some problems are meant to be solved, but other problems are meant to be struggled with for our own evolution and transformation. And here's where I think the second way of relating to monogamy and non-monogamy can fall into our relationships. It's to step more deeply into our discomfort in a difficult struggle where we meet our edges and allow ourselves to become, even if our eyes pop out and we get loose in our joints. Mm. And one of the results of that, I think, and we've talked a little bit about this in the ways that we can connect to more than just our romantic partner, is that ultimately on the spiritual path of polyamory, the universe itself becomes our soulmate. We are the soulmate that we can offer our love out into the universe because we have all of the love that we really need. And I think that really is the essence of walking polyamory as a spiritual path, as opposed to just a path for our own comfort. Mm. Yeah. And with that, again, this idea of spiritual bypassing, I think can apply. Like if you hear what Justin's saying, you know, and if you hear just the through line throughout this that I very much get on board with. If you're a listener, please don't hear that as that you should skip over your own work. If you catch yourself dating a non-monogamous person that's pushing you to go to the next thing, pushing you to go faster than you're ready to go for, there's one thing to lean in 
I think what Justin's saying about leaning in is beautiful and it can really help us grow. But there's some of us, especially over givers, will hear that leaning in and you will lean in so much that you are dysregulating your nervous system. You're having panic attacks. You're, you're losing your identity and your effort to please your partner. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. Like going on your journey and being where you're at and not doing any kind of spiritual bypassing in your polyamory path means loving yourself well, leaning in, but also loving yourself and your partners well and setting the boundaries that you need to set in order to be gentle to your nervous system. So I'm wondering, Justin, like how would you, if you were to like open that up and put a magnifying glass on the leaning in, everybody has their own path. And you've said many times you don't want to dictate your own agenda on someone. But what do you think are some tells that say, okay, this is a good leaning in, but this is too much in terms of leaning in? That is so important. Thank you for naming that because I really do want to be crystal clear about that. It's not about leaning in to something that isn't right for you. It's not about leaning in to sacrifice your own needs to please someone else. In that example, I think leaning in might be leaning into this discomfort of disappointing your partner in order to prioritize your needs. And that's the type of leaning in that's required. Polyamory on the spiritual path has nothing to do about the number of sexual partners or romantic partners you have. You can be polyamorous and celibate, polyamorous and single, because it's about identifying the barriers in your heart that prevents you from giving and receiving love in ways that are totally authentic to you. So loving yourself sometimes means setting really clear boundaries about what is or isn't acceptable to you. But I think the key there is that we allow ourselves the freedom to explore and to learn from our mistakes. And so that, yeah, you're going to, in order to find the right way for you, you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to have to learn from them. And you're going to need to stretch your muscles a little bit out of their comfort zone. And you might even pull a muscle if you step a little bit too far out of your comfort zone in a way that is outside of your window of tolerance in your nervous system. But then you take really good care of yourself. Just like if you pull the physical muscle, you will give it exactly the care and tenderness and support it needs so that it can heal. And then that's information for you about what you are or aren't willing to do again in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. As you were saying that, I was just thinking that you're reflecting back on my own journey of tapping into my real self. I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning and I see a lot of people afraid to make those mistakes. But if we're getting comfortable with discomfort and we've never felt that discomfort before and we can't identify what's the the healthier, more productive discomfort and what is I'm shoving myself into a box where I really don't belong, we're going to fumble a bit. That's part of the process. And I think I see a lot of people forgetting that or being scared that they might make a mistake or misjudge as they're learning. And it's part of the process. And if you have the resources, I think it's so important to work with someone that can help you navigate this. Because just as if I were interested in learning to be a gymnast, well, I'm not going to just try this stuff all by myself. I'm going to get a coach who can help me do it in a safe way. Well, especially here, It's so important for so many people to have someone to help them navigate this experience so they can do it as safely as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen people within non-monogamy or within kink, we're mostly talking about poly today, but in the kink community, I've seen people end up getting isolated in it. 
you know, where they're just being non-monogamous with one person and they're going to swinger events, but it, they don't have a close relationship with people at the swinger events or, or they're kinky and they're just in this household and this person has isolated them. You know, it's like, just like with a psychedelic experience, community helps all the way through with kink or non-monogamy. I think a lot of times having community that seems wise and kind to you is important all the way through. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. So thank you so much. Justin, for coming on. I have the feeling I'll, I'll probably want you to come back at some point. <laughs> yes, please. I just adore you. I, I really think you are amazing. I love all the things. We're just focusing on a few things in this episode, but what you offer as a human and your interests are so much more vast. And there is no way to cover everything that embodies you in an episode of Open Deeply. You're just a very vast and deep person. Thank you. I've had a lot of teachers and it's just an honor to be able to share this teaching. I'm trying to become the person that I wish I had when I was figuring all of these things out all by myself. Yeah. So with that said, you know, and I love the Velveteen Rabbit analogy that's come through. And I think it shows up so many different places, whether we're talking about our psychedelic experiences or, or within non-monogamy or within kink, where I think when we're surrounded by the right people, they will love the Velveteen Rabbit version of us. They will see that and think that's beautiful. And I think it's such a beautiful analogy to apply in so many areas of the ways that you work. And with that said, I'm wondering if you would like to tell us about where people can find you, anything that you got going on, just anything you would like the world to know about. Sure, thank you. So for my therapy practice, you can reach that by going to justinnatoli.com or Therapy with Justin on Instagram. The queer medicine community, which is separate from my therapy practice, it's queermedicine.com or queer medicine community on Instagram or other social media platforms. Okay, wonderful. Well, I just adore you and I think you're just going to do amazing things in this world. I hope people find you on social media and all of these things. Yeah, just thank you for being you, for being the velveteen rabbit that you are and going on the journey that probably had some pain for you to be as authentic as you are right now so you can be a model for that in this world. Thank you for doing that. For listeners, please remember to check out Sunny's podcast as well, American Sex, her other podcast. It's amazing. I love that podcast. And please join us for the next episode where once again, we will open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.